We're going to be in Colossians 1 this morning, so if you've got a Bible, head there now, Colossians 1, 15. I'm going to read uh, just five verses from that chapter there, probably five of the deepest, richest, most profound verses in Scripture. And so if you've got a Bible, follow along with me, otherwise I think the words will be on the screen behind me. So Colossians 1, 15, it's all about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, it seems to me that at the moment the only place it is safe and acceptable for your faith to be public is in the rugby league, in the NRL. Since it's the only place it's cool and still okay for someone to have their faith in the public arena. And so if you will have noticed on the Easter, that the, the um, NRL played games on Easter weekend this year and after some of those games, some of the Christian players, even from opposing teams, huddled together on the field in front of the cameras and prayed. And some of the media loved it, some of the media hated it, but for the most part, it was received well. Or just take, for example, the obsession with Jared Hayne and his faith. I mean, I get it. I've got a little bit of a man crush on Jared. He's amazing. You guys are beast, right? But, but the media loved Jared Hayne, and they let him talk about his faith as much as he wants. But yet you cross into the political arena, and it's a different thing altogether. The, the outgoing of the last Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, said, don't judge a Prime Minister on his private faith, but on his public policy. Because faith is something that is hidden and private and not for the public arena. It seems like everywhere else that is the case, except for rugby league. So all of our hopes are pinned on Jared Hayne. <laughs> He's not the Messiah. But it seems to me that that's increasingly the message we hear about Jesus. He's not important. He's insignificant. It's a matter for you, and it's private. You know, when we make Jesus unimportant, when we make Jesus private, we have no time for him. When we make Jesus small and insignificant, that is a disaster for your faith. It will derail the church. And it's the very issue that Paul is writing to this church in the city of Colossae about. This is a city that is highly pluralistic. There are multiple beliefs, multiple deities, all vying for this church's attention and worship and affection. In addition to that, there is false teaching that has come in here that it says, in addition to Jesus, there is some extra knowledge and experience that you can gain. And it's into that melee that Paul writes this 
letter and in particular these verses to this church to remind them that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is important, that Jesus is significant. In fact, he's far more significant than any teaching in any God that exists in their city. And that is as true today as it was then when Paul first penned these words. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to step into the prayer that Brad reminded us of last week. Remember Brad was saying that Paul prays for this expanding knowledge of Jesus. That he would, that the, the church there would have this, this overflowing view of how wonderful Jesus is. And that's exactly what he does in these verses here in chapters, chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. This is kind of like theology super concentrated. You know, like super concentrate weed killer, super concentrate cordial. You just add one drop to the water and it's enough to satisfy you. Like this is, this is the lofty heights of Christology that we, like you will be hard pressed to find any verses in the rest of the Bible that hold Jesus in such high regard with such few words. Like we are swimming in the deep end of theology here. And I'm nervous to preach on it. I'm almost tempted to just read it, read it again, and then sit down and let the passage do its job. But what I want to do this morning is point out five things that expand our view of Jesus. Five things that help us see that Jesus is significant and enough. And so the first is, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. Just a small one. But he is God. Let's go to verse 15 together. He is, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God. Now, God is not invisible in the sense that he's not real. right? God is very much real. You just cannot see and touch God. He doesn't exist in that form, but Jesus did. Jesus is very much real. Jesus is a person, a historical figure. His feet touched the soil in Palestine. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 18, the writer of John's Gospel says this about Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. You see, the God that we cannot see is made visible in the person of Jesus. That Jesus reveals the Father to us. That, that Jesus helps us see his character, his worth. You know, in in uh, the Ten Commandments, you remember those things that are horribly out of fashion right now, the Ten Commandments? Commandment number two is, you shall not make an image or an idol out of anything in all creation. Why? Because anything that's created cannot possibly accurately reflect God. It falls horribly short until we get to Jesus, the man Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. You know, many people have said to me, well, how can I know if God is real? How can I know if God is there? Well, the answer is Jesus. Jesus shows us God. Jesus who walked the face of this earth, whom people saw and touched and, and heard about and then wrote an account of his life that we might read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Everything about Jesus reveals something about God, his character, his power that Jesus could calm a storm and raise the dead. His love and compassion for his people that God would send his one and only son. Everything 
about Jesus reveals something about God to us. He is the image of the invisible God. Now to make that point a little bit clearer, he goes on in verse 19 to say this, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know, God was said to dwell in the temple. So that his presence filled the temple. You think of that image that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel 44 where he sees the glory of the Lord filling the temple. And then Paul takes that language and says, God fills Jesus in every way. All of his glory and his majesty and his sovereignty and his worth dwell completely and fully in Jesus. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He says this, So spacious is Jesus, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Paul repeats this idea in case they missed it. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Friends, make no mistake what these verses are claiming here. These verses are unequivocally claiming that Jesus is God, that he is divine. To claim anything less would make a mockery of the basic comprehension of English would misrepresent Paul and the line of scriptures. Jesus is God. Not, not a demigod, not a God, not like God. He is divine in every sense of the word. He is God. And if he's God, then he is entirely worthy of worship. He's entirely worthy of all our affection and praise and lives. And if Jesus reveals the Father to us. That says that God wants to be known. That He's taking the initiative to demonstrate for us who He is, His character. Jesus is to be worshipped because He is God. Well, secondly, Jesus is ruler. So first, that He is divine, He is God. Secondly, He is ruler. Come back to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that, that statement there, firstborn of all creation, that doesn't, it's not a description of his birth order, that Jesus was maybe the very first created being in the universe. That's not what it's saying. In fact, this whole passage tries to create a gigantic gap between Jesus and creation. He is over creation in every sense of the word. This verse cannot possibly mean that Jesus was the first created being. Instead, this is a title of significance. You know King David? He is called the firstborn. And he wasn't the firstborn in his family. He had brothers older than him. And yet he's called the firstborn. Or the nation of Israel is called a firstborn. It speaks of authority. It speaks of inheritance. It speaks of power and significance. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, what he's saying is that Jesus stands to inherit it all. It's his, and he rules over it. He is king. That's what he means when he says he is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is king. And if he's king, that means that we're his subjects. 
Now, in the anti-monarchical inner west of Sydney, progressive inner west, I mean, that, that's horrifying to our ears, is it not? You're not subject to anyone. I mean, the closest thing we come to a king, I mean, you could factor in the royal family, but they're in another country, and they really just greet us on the cover of magazines that we never read, and we're not all that interested. The closest we have to a king is Wally Lewis. King Wally, right? And we don't even like him because he's a Queensland. I mean, we do not bow the knee to anyone. But if Jesus is God, if he rules over his creation, if he is king, then we must. We have to. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He's King. And the third reason, the third thing that expands our view of Jesus, and the reason that He is both God and King, is that He created everything. Have a look at verse 16 with me. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything, that's what it's saying, everything is created by Jesus. Everything you can see, everything you can't see, night and day, land, sea and sky, birds, animals, reptiles, the smallest atom to the largest dinosaur, Jesus created all of it, every part of it. All things bright and beautiful. All creatures great and small. You know that song with RSPCA stole from us? <laughs> one back. <laughs> Everything. Jesus created all of it. Now I realize that that is met with scorn from, from our culture. But surely you guys don't believe that all of this was created by some fairy god that you believe in. I mean, science has done you Christians a favor. We've shown you how the world can exist without God. Maybe. You know even science wants just one free miracle. The miracle of the appearance of matter out of nothing. And I want to suggest, if you're happy with one miracle, why not multiple? And if you're happy for something to be come out of nothing, and all of this wonderful order you see in creation without a God. You know, there's um, the father of modern astronomy and cosmology. Uh, like, the guy is just super smart, right? He, he, he's just, he's ridiculous. He has taught everyone how to do astronomy and cosmology, and he's only recently just died. His name's Alan Sandage. He spent his lifetime studying the universe. And he says this, after a lifetime of study, he gave his life to Jesus at the end of his life, and he says this, I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle. God, to me, is a mystery, but is the explanation for the miracle of existence, why there is something instead of nothing. The miracle of existence. There is no explanation for it. 
It's outside of the scientific realm of understanding. And here is a man who spent his life studying the universe, its order, its perfection, its wonder, and he says, God has to have done this. Jesus created everything. You were created by him. You were created for him. And friends, I want to tell you, that instantly brings purpose and meaning and significance to your life. That you have been created by a God in his image and likeness. You are not a cosmic accident. Like you are not a, a random freak mutation that just happened to turn good. You are made in the image and likeness of Jesus. And that makes your life purposeful. I believe that purpose and creative intention are tied together. And to illustrate that, let me use this beautifully yet delicate lectern up here that Brian fathomed with his own hands and his wife's help. But this lectern was simply a pile of old fence palings rotting on the farm until the Hendersons came and carefully designed it and crafted it. It's held together with glue and nails. And you can't see this, but at the bottom of this leaning platform here, there's a little ledge that allows my notes to slide down without falling off. And, and it's kind of tilted on this angle, so it's perfectly so I can see it. And as you look at this thing, you don't go, oh, that was a mistake. You think, I think someone made this for a purpose. I think this is a pulpit. What's a pulpit? That's the thing minister delivers his sermon from. And this is it, right? Fragile and beautiful as it is, you can tell that this thing was created for a purpose. And so are you. As you look at humanity, as you look at the wonder of this world, God created you. He created this world for purpose. That brings significance, meaning, dignity, value and worth to humanity, to your life. Jesus made everything. So, Jesus is divine, he's God. Jesus is king over creation, he's ruler. Jesus is the creator. And fourthly, Jesus sustains everything. Have a look at verse 17 with me. He is before all things, and in him all things hold Together, one author has described Jesus as the spiritual gravity of the universe. He holds everything together. There is not a single law of nature that operates outside of Jesus' will and purpose and power. He holds everything together. We are not self-sufficient. As much as we like to think we are, we're entirely dependent on Jesus every single day. Every second of every day, we are dependent on Jesus. You know, if you grew up in a church, and I know many of you did, you may have grown up learning that song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Another one? Great theology, isn't it? And, uh, I mean, it's good that we can teach our kids songs about Jesus. And brilliant God, he's got the whole world in his hands. Jesus holds everything together. What profound truth, and yet, I wonder if we believe it. I wonder if we really believe that. 
Jesus sustains everything. And if he holds everything together, that means we ought to trust him. If Jesus holds the universe together, I'm pretty sure he can hold your world together. I'm pretty sure he's trustworthy with your job and your family and your study and your choices. He holds it all together. Worry, anxiety, fear, all of those things fade in the arms of the Savior with that kind of control and power and significance. Jesus holds everything together. When we make Jesus small, when we downplay his significance and importance, what we end up doing is putting on our own shoulders the things that Jesus does, like hold all things together. And so we end up carrying the burden of the world upon our shoulders. My guess is there are many of you here this morning who, who are arm wrestling Jesus for control of your life. Maybe anxiety is crippling you this morning. Worry about all of the, the details of your life, about what's next, about the future. I just want to remind you that that sense of control that you have is only perceived. It's not real. Jesus holds everything together. The whole universe, including your life. Will you trust him? Will you enjoy the freedom of living in light of that reality and let go and trust that Jesus is in control? Trust that he is good. Trust that he is powerful. He holds all things together. He is divine. He is God. He is ruler and Lord of creation. He is creator. He is sustainer. And finally, he is the head of the church. Have a look at verse 18 with me. And Jesus is the head of the body of the church. Now I want to suggest to you that the head has a fairly significant function when it comes to your body. Right? Pretty important. Not like some of the other parts of your body that seem to have no purpose, like your appendix. What's with the appendix? Nothing. All it's good for is inflammation, surgery, swelling, and a doctor's bill at the end of it. Or wisdom teeth. What's with wisdom teeth? They hurt, they get pulled out. Dental bill, like it seems like the common theme is body parts that are unnecessary and in surgery and doctor's bills. <laughs> the head's pretty important. Oh, have you thought for a second, and just forgive me for the image that this puts in your head, but male nipples? Why? Why do dudes need nipples? But your head, on the other hand, your head is very important. Your head functions to send signals throughout your whole nervous system to create all of the autonomous functioning of your body, your breathing, your heart pumping, all of those things that you don't even think about are happening. The head gives life to your body. It controls your body. And in the same way, Jesus gives life to the church by His Spirit. Jesus is the control center of the church, directing us, guiding us, leading us. 
He is our final authority. He is head of the church. Yeah, we make a grave mistake when we take Jesus out of that position and put a human person there. What human is able to govern the church better than Jesus? He is our senior pastor. And I realize that's slightly cheeky, but it's true. He is. Jesus is senior pastor of the church. And it is a disaster waiting to happen when we minimize Jesus and his significance in the church. Of all places, we ought to get how important Jesus is. He is our senior pastor, head of the church. So, he's divine, he's God, he's ruler, he's creator, he's sustainer, he's senior pastor. He's important, Jesus. In fact, he's ultimate. This is what it says, verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that Jesus might be supreme, that Jesus might be ultimate in everything. That's kind of Paul's summary statement of these verses. Jesus is ultimate. He is preeminent. And Jesus needs to be preeminent in our lives, not simply just prominent. I want to suggest there's a big difference between prominence and preeminence. Prominence means that Jesus is just noticeable. Maybe it's a cross around the neck. If you're hardcore, you've got a Christian tattoo. Or maybe it's church attendance. Maybe it's a Facebook status. There's a big difference between Jesus just being noticeable in your life and him being preeminent. Preeminence is this all-consuming passion that, it, that just permeates every corner of your life. There is no hidden part of your life that Jesus is not Lord over. There is no sacred, secular divide between your, your Friday and the rest of your week. Jesus is preeminent in everything, all of it. Every minute of every day, every motive, every thought, every action, Jesus rules. He is king of our hearts, affections, drive, passion, and attention. Arnaldo quoted this uh, his message a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. <coughs> Over this world, Jesus says, mine. Over this city, he says, mine. Over this church, he says, mine. Over White Horse Church, he says, mine. Over your life, mine. Mine. Your family, your money, your house, your career, your dreams, your gifts, everything. Now, if Jesus isn't God and King and ruler and Lord, and if he's none of those things, then that statement is ludicrous. That Jesus would claim your life. But if he is, it's only appropriate that all of that belongs to him. It's how Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I live in the flesh, and I live by faith in Jesus. This is not my life. It was never my life to begin with because Jesus created me and I'm now doubly His because He has saved me. I belong to Him. 
I'm not sure who, who made this quote because I've been researching during the week and it seems like everyone attributes it to different people. It's either Hudson Taylor or Francis Schaeffer, but he says, or they say, or someone said sometime, <laughs> that if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. We cannot say to Jesus, you're a Lord of my Sunday, but Monday to Friday is kind of mine. Or you can be Lord of this part of my life, but I'm keeping it. Or you can be Lord of this part of our world, but not like he's Lord of everything or he's not Lord at all. It's all or nothing with Jesus. So let me ask the church this morning, are there areas of your life that you are holding back? Saying, God, I'm not really sure I'm going to let you in on this part. This bit's mine. Is Jesus small for you today? Is he, are you believing the cultural narrative that Jesus is not important, a private matter, has no bearing of significance on reality? Because a small view of Jesus will kill your faith. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, you wouldn't say that you're a Christian. And I hope you can see at the very least that we're passionate about Jesus. But the question isn't really, are these guys passionate about Jesus? The question is, is the resume that we've seen of Jesus here in 1 Corinthians, in Colossians 1, 15-20, is that resume of who Jesus is accurate, real, and true? Because if it is, it changes everything about who He is. It means that He cannot be insignificant, small, and unworthy of our worship. If this is who Jesus is, it changes everything. And if, if, if you're there, if, if, if you don't believe in Jesus, please, can I implore you, please, don't diminish his significance by saying he's a myth, he wasn't real. No credible historian would say that. This is a man who walked the face of this earth and changed the world, and we stake our lives on this truth. Please respect that. And allow us to respect your beliefs in dialogue and talk together about the significance of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You know, they think that these verses here, at least maybe 15 to 18, maybe 19 and 20, formed what is known as a very, very early Christian hymn. And Paul either wrote it himself or it existed and he inserted it into this letter. But doesn't it seem fitting that some of the most profound words about Jesus overflow into praise that Theology becomes doxology, the propositions about Jesus become praise to Jesus. That seems fitting to me. And we're going to do that in a moment as we respond in worship, but it doesn't end here. We're going to do that 9 to 5, 24-7 as we leave the four walls of this building, worship Jesus. But it's fitting that these words here become praise about Jesus. And he's praiseworthy, not simply because of who he is, but he's praiseworthy also because of what he's done. This is what Jesus has done. Have a look at verse 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, when everything ought to be all about Jesus, we've made our lives all about me, all about us. We've pushed Jesus off the throne, we've got comfy in his seat, we've attributed his creativity to chance, 
We make it all about us. And that posture towards God creates a fracture, a fracture in relationship with Him. In Genesis 3, as the fall comes into the picture, we see this fracture occurring across a number of spheres. Firstly, there is a fracture between us and God. That relationship that we have is broken, severed, and fractured. But not only that, the fracture between people exists. There is a fracture between humanity and creation, and creation and God. And Jesus says here that he is reconciling all things to himself. All things. Not just people, but this whole creation has been restored back to God to reflect its original creative purpose and intent. Jesus is not insignificant. There is a cosmic consequence of the death and resurrection of Jesus that will affect the whole world. He is reconciling all things to himself. Isn't it stunning to think that the God, the King, the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe wants to know you, wants peace, wants reconciliation. That's a stunning fact that ought to blow your mind this morning. And if you don't know that peace, then we would love today to be the day that you experience the peace of God in Christ. Come to Jesus. Receive the forgiveness that he offers. Maybe remind yourself this morning for the thousandth time that God is not angry at you. He loves you. He sent Jesus to die for your sin. Appropriate the gospel again. I hope you see that there is something profoundly significant about Jesus. Everything, 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 everything is all about Jesus. And we're going to respond in two ways to this King who is worthy of our worship. The first way we're going to respond is in singing songs of praise to Him. The second way we're going to respond is in a meal. And there's something beautiful about this meal because as Jesus brings reconciliation, he reconciles brother and sister together. He reconciles Jew and Gentile, destroying the dividing wall of hostility. And this meal is a picture of unity. And what better way to do that with two churches gathered together? Anchor Church, White Horse Church. An expression of gospel unity as we eat this meal together, remembering that we are one. Yes, we meet in a different location at the same time. Different location, in a different part of our city, but we are one. There is one church in this city, the church of Jesus Christ. And he rules and he reigns over it. And this meal is a symbol of our participation in that union. And so I invite those of you who love Jesus, who have Jesus as their king, to come forward after a moment of reflection, a prayer, a confession, take the bread, dip it in the grape juice and eat it, remembering that Jesus has reconciled you to God. He's reconciled you to your brother and sister. And rejoice. Is that right? We pray and we worship. Let's go. God, I thank you. I thank you that you have sent Jesus, our King, our Creator, our Ruler, our Lord, our Sustainer, our Senior Pastor. And Jesus, we love you. We want to worship you today with every fiber of our being. We want to give you all the praise glory and honour that you deserve. King Jesus, we worship you now. We pray this in your strong name, knowing that you hear in God's people's name. Amen.